I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello everyone, I'm Tom Daly for the Agora Podcast Network, and welcome to the first installment of what will hopefully be a periodically reoccurring Agora Podcast Network original series called Fifty Shades of Great. The genesis of this show lies in the heart of historical debate, in those discussions which inevitably wind their way to disagreements about who or what represented the greatest of whatever the category is who was the greatest conqueror, or who was the greatest rock band, or the greatest... well, you get the point. Fifty Shades of Great endeavors to try and answer these types of questions in what we hope is a constructive manner, through a substantive discussion on the merits, which maybe, just maybe, might be able to get at a more objective measure of greatness. For this inaugural episode, the matchup is George Washington vs. Napoleon Bonaparte. Both men were born to impoverished, petty noble families at the fringes of their respective empires near the twilight of the established orders in their worlds. Both men would come to command revolutionary armies and become the civil executives in their revolutionary governments. So now, without further ado, here is the discussion between Zach Twomley, Stephen Guerra, Travis Dow, and myself trying to get to the bottom of who was greater, George Washington or Napoleon Bonaparte. So today I'm joined by an esteemed panel to get down to the bottom of who was greater, George Washington or Napoleon Bonaparte. So let me just introduce them now. Uh, Joining me is Travis Dow. Hi, I'm I'm, I'm Travis. I do the podcast Nick shows, which is a bunch of shows, but... um... And I, I'm I'm undecided. I don't have uh, I'm not picking sides yet. Well, we'll see what we can do about that. Uh, also joining me today is Stephen Guerra. Hi guys, um, I'm from the History of the Papacy podcast, and I really don't have a strong opinion either. 
this is shaping up fantastically. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, rounding out the panel today is Zach Twomley. Hey guys, how's it going? I'm Zach Twomley from When Diplomacy Fails, and I am very much in favor of Old Boney, so let's see how this goes. All right, and as always, I am Tom Daly. Uh, my podcast is American Biography, and I am staunchly Washingtonian. So uh, let's see. So the idea of this uh, Fifty Shades of Great episode is to sort of compare across uh, similar life experiences multiple people that qualify as great um, and see by those comparisons who can come out on top. So I think the first point of relative comparison between uh, the lives of George Washington and Napoleon Bonaparte clearly is their military career. Um, you know, they were both uh, generals in a revolutionary government, and they both had to endure some understandable trials and tribulations uh, coming from that situation. So I guess to start with, and uh, I think we'll start with Travis, what do you think some of the greatest strengths of either or one in particular of those people were. Oh, okay. So in it, Oh, in general terms, um, I would say the greatest strength, if we compare them as, as, as generals, I would say, <laughs> yes, um, as military Nap leaders. Yeah. Then, then Napoleon kind of led the biggest army in the world and, um, did what he did. So that's, that's one thing, but Washington fought at the biggest army of the world at the time. And, um, you know, held them off. So it's it's really apples and oranges. That's they're both amazing stories. Um, if I had to pick one, I would say in this case, let me let me go with Napoleon and say, um, just because of his conquest and victories, that um, despite having you know, I mean, he had the biggest army in the world, but he was also he he proved himself as using that um, what he had wisely and took it very far. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, Steve, did you have any thoughts on that? I would say that from what I know about Napoleon, I wouldn't say I'm an expert by any means, but he seems like as a straight military commander or general that he far surpasses Washington. It seems to me like Washington was really a master of logistics and not fighting the war that his enemy wanted him to fight. So he probably wouldn't be considered among the greatest commanders like, you know, um, you know, battlefield type people who are all into that stuff. But it, for all the outside factors, the politics and logistics, he, he really I think that's where he excelled. OK, and Zach, I would have to say, I mean, much like Stephen claims to not know too much about Napoleon, I would claim to not know a whole deal about the American Revolution and Washington's part to play in it. I know him more as a kind of national figure, whereas I know Napoleon more as a kind of military leader, but also a national figure at the same time. So I would say that their strengths, kind of like Travis said, they're kind of apples and oranges. So in my head, one guy is a great leader, another guy is a great military man. I mean, I'm sure the two overlap, but to me, uh, I would have to place Napoleon in the camp of the better general, really. 
Tom, okay, you, you uh, got something to say about that, don't you? Oh, I absolutely do. I, uh, I, I, like... I, I have an answer too, but go ahead. I want to hear what you, what, you know, your response. No, bring I, it on. Yeah, yeah, bring I it wanna, I want to preface. Yeah. I'd like to preface by saying I actually really like Napoleon. I've done a lot of reading on Napoleon. Um, but in this case, I, I would have to kind of be contrary to, to you guys and say that Washington, I think, had the greater strengths as a, a military leader. I premise that on the idea that in France, the levee en masse and the Italian army that Napoleon eventually took over was already a well-formulated and well-disciplined military unit. And he was able to get great achievements out of that. It, there's no doubt that tactically and strategically, Napoleon is a better X's and O's military commander. On the other side of the argument, though, Washington is taking over a mess. Washington is basically has inherited a ragtag militia. When he takes, uh, when he takes the force over uh, outside of Boston, uh, it's basically sitting in filth. He has to basically write the entire book of how this is going to work on his own. He's never given centralized uh, support from any type of government structure uh, throughout his entire time, and and he's able to, as Travis touched upon earlier, fight the entire military might of one of the greatest armies of the time, and as Stephen pointed out, not fight it on their terms, and is able to, I think you could say, have an unqualified military success against mm -hmm. them by not utilizing, uh, you know, more direct tactics. He wasn't the Alexander that Napoleon was, but he really was the Fabius. I think also George Washington, I was thinking about this earlier. He learned his lessons early. He took his he took his um, big defeats earlier in his career where he did try to square off against the British Army on their terms. And after he got thrashed doing it, he pivoted and changed his plan where it seems like Napoleon didn't take a thumping until the end of the line. And it was probably too late at that point. I, I would I would agree and I would give Washington I would give Washington like I would say okay that's fair enough but whereas you might say uh, Washington learned from his mistakes I think everyone else learned from Napoleon's successes and I think that alone qualifies Napoleon like Nap Napoleon basically invented a new way to fight and uh, <clears throat> yes you could say Washington did very well with with the circumstances and the resources that he was in but if you think about it would Washington have succeeded had it not been for the considerable French help or the gigantic gap between the seas that Britain and the United States were subjected to? I mean, consider the fact that for much of the entire Napoleonic Wars, Napoleon basically held his own at the centre of Europe, facing a mirage of morass of various different enemies. And nearly every time, almost until the very end, when he overextended himself and people began to learn the best way to fight wars, and basically copied what he was doing. Um, up until that point, Napoleon was the supreme, essential warlord of of Europe. So, Travis, you had said you might have uh, had I, an additional point as well. Yeah, because well, I can't get past the apples and oranges. I mean, it's just so different. But um, to you know, to give some examples of where Washington was a great general or or showed leadership militarily is um, 
like the Battle of Yorktown. And then a lot of his victories weren't like straight up victories or battles um, weren't, but they just weren't as big a losses as they could have been, or he ended up saving the army. So yeah, I mean, apples and oranges. But um, in Yorktown, you know, he really uh, worked, He first of all, he worked with the French, you know, again, he, he did have uh, help from the French Navy and they could block, blockade everything. Um, that should be said, of course, you know, he wasn't unilateral in anything. Um, but he, but he, you know, in Yorktown, he built trenches. He was kind of really thinking about um, doing the best he can with his limited resources and s- slowly crept his way up to the British, you know, foreshadowing warfare, you know, a century later. Now, Napoleon, oh, yeah, of, of course, Napoleon reinvented warfare. Um, yeah. So, again, it's hard to say, but Washington was clearly a brilliant military leader, um, even in the, you know, earlier French-Indian wars and and. I mean, he just he just showed um, courage a lot of times, even as a young man. Um, but yeah, so was he, you know, was he, then did he go off and, you know, conquer a huge territory once he was president? No. So yeah, again, like, I don't think he ever wanted to. They just had different ambitions. So you're, 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 you're measuring them by different tests, you know, by different. Um, yeah. So eh, hard to say. Yeah, um, well, that that's very true. Yeah. I I I would absolutely say. I mean, Washington was a great general, but if we're comparing them purely, and it's in a way, it's not really fair to compare yeah, them yeah. along these I lines. Mean, yep, exactly. So uh, they, they, if, they bo- if, in their own areas, they both come out ahead. You know, so yeah, uh, yeah right. Um, if if um, maybe if Napoleon used some of Washington's strategies, he could have done ten times more with the with the resources he had. They were both really great at logistics. I mean, they're, you know, but but again, apples and oranges because, um, and on one side you're trying to feed millions, and the other side you're just trying to feed starving soldiers. Um, yeah, and they both did it exceedingly well. Um, mm. So, uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> hard to say. But, you know, I think this is a good place to you know broaden it, not just from their strengths, but we can actually start to talk about, uh, I guess, some of their weaknesses uh, as well mm-hmm. um, as military commanders. Now, um, I think, as I said, and I think everyone's alluded to, Napoleon is the better X's no commander. Um, where Washington himself is sort of famous for writing up these elaborate. Uh, four-column night marches that are going to, you know, meet up at the crack of dawn uh, and with military precision that would test, you know, Julius Caesar's armies. He was just strategically not the most realistic in his judgments. Um, I think uh, the Battle of Germantown is a famous uh, example of this where basically everything goes wrong with his over-elaborate plan. That said, what would you say some of Napoleon's greatest military weaknesses were? I think one of his major ones was his complete misunderstanding of the British psyche and how he never quite grasped the fact that the whole balance of power concept, and I'm going to try and not go off on a big tangent here because if I'm not careful, I will. I do um, it. <laughs> um, I just want like the fact that I remember listening to uh, the Napoleon 101 podcast with Cameron Riley and J. David Markham. It was like the second podcast I ever listened to. But I remember there's one episode when they're talking about the Peace of Amiens in, I think it was 1803 or 1804 or something. But uh, Britain makes peace with France and France is like supreme. And then gradually over the space of a year, that peace kind of wait, like gets gets worn down and they're at war again. And J. David Markham, who's an expert on Napoleon, unquestionably 
keeps on asking the question, why can't Britain just leave Napoleon alone? Why can't why can't he just like why can't Britain just accept that Napoleon is supreme in, in Europe and why can't they just leave him to his own devices and all that kind of thing? Kind of comes down to much the same, and I'm not comparing uh, Napoleon to Hitler, uh, but it's kind of the same as the way Hitler was thinking in 1940. Why doesn't Britain just make a separate peace? I mean, for me, um, Napoleon's greatest weakness, I mean, militarily, yes, he was. He wasn't really able to adapt in later years, and he wasn't, to to a great extent, he didn't really seem to have a plan B when it came to overcoming other powers as manipulating of his kind of strategies. But his greatest weakness for me was misunderstanding Britain and Britain's tenacity and refusal to let things stay the way they were. Because for Britain, as long as there was a supreme power on the continent, Britain was never going to have a completely happy peace. And the the year in between the peace of Amiens breaking down, I think, shows that because Britain began to use any excuse to go back at war with France because they knew even if the French and even if Napoleon said, yes, I mean, Britain will be our friend during peacetime. Like, there was this fear, of course, that Napoleon would take over all of Europe and would turn Europe against Britain. And because that fear was there, uh, there was never going to be peace. And Napoleon's inability to really grasp that, I think, led to his own downfall in the end. So we can all agree Britain's the ultimate bad guy in the story? (laughs) No? I agree 100% 100 with the point... um, that in this one regard, in this one regard of underestimating the psyche of Britain or under, you know, just underestimating the British people. Um, yeah, there's there's a parallel there in just the megalomania and the misunderstanding of um, what Britain's reaction would be. Um, there's a parallel there with Hitler in that in that single regard, you know, as the as the history of Germany uh, podcast host, I got to be yeah. very careful. But but seriously, in that like, he, you know, they just didn't understand that. England could not possibly let it be. Mm-hmm. Um, and Napoleon, Napoleon could, you know, could be excused because maybe there's no real precedent there that um, he just, he just couldn't look back in history and understand that. Okay. But, but Hitler could have looked at Napoleon, the reaction to England and be like, why did they, you know, why did that peace break down and why did yeah. England act so um, uh, aggressively against Napoleon, you know? Um, oh, yeah, because England doesn't like if there's a, a huge major power on, you know, right across the channel. So, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, even even be, being very careful there, I would say, yeah, there's there's parallels. There's there's a misunderstanding of what would happen, a misunderstanding of the consequences of, of all of his actions and his politics. Definitely. I, I want to pick up on, on the idea of megalomania or, or at least ambition. Maybe megalomania is a little little harsh, but I see that as Napoleon's greatest weakness sure. um, and, and his inability to let things be. And, and conversely, I sort of see that the opposite of that in Washington, his humility uh, in, in many instances um, and his dedication to an overarching cause. Because you, you can't say that, or you can say rather, that at some point Napoleon wasn't fighting for the French Revolution anymore. And he oh, began he, fighting for Napoleon. He betrayed the revolution. Whereas Absolutely. Washington, Washington, oh my, oh yeah, that's. And and, and I and I bring <laughs> I bring a I bring an example into that. Some some of you may be uh, familiar with uh, the Newburgh conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, uh, uh, this is late in the war, seventeen eighty three. The the fighting's done, but the war isn't settled, so the army's still in in encampment. 
the officers have had it. They don't believe in Congress. They don't think they're going to get their pensions. Uh, they are organizing in Newburgh, New York, and Washington attends this meeting of officers. He, at that moment, has the ability to say, you know what, guys, I'm with you. Let's raise the army and let's march on Philadelphia. Instead, he reads letters from Congress about, you know, promises deferred, gives a short address. But during the course of this, what he does, and it, it speaks to the attachment that these men had to him personally, so he could have done whatever he wanted. But he needs to put glasses on at some point. And he, he says, you know, pardon me, and I'm paraphrasing here, but not only have I grown gray, but I've gone blind in service to my country. And that simple gesture, the officers begin weeping. <laughs> and they're and they're ashamed of themselves that this man who's led led us for eight years through all sorts of tra uh, travails is still not willing to betray the state. But we were. And the conspiracy melts away. Hmm. And in my book, that's greatness. Yeah. Now, I, I would like to add that Washington was clearly very ambitious. I, I like the difference is, is that um, I would. I would view Napoleon's ambitions as more negative and Washington's as like, okay, he was just a very ambitious man. But when he did come to power, he did good things with it. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, oh, he was, I mean, hey, Napoleon did fantastic things. Um, again, like I, I, one of my main arguments pro Napoleon, just, you know, I, I don't think I'll ever be a hundred percent pro Washington just because in this argument, in this debate, because Napoleon emancipated the Jews. So all the other crap he did, you know, the death of six million people, which, again, that's OK. <laughs> um, but he, uh, he brought in, you know, the smaller things like education and the metric system. And he, he did great things. Washington did um, better. Th I mean, better things, um, except for emancipating the Jews is just hard to beat. That is just like he, uh, the Nazis really just repealed Napoleonic reforms. A lot of the Nuremberg trials was just repealing Napoleonic reforms. So in that in that regard, I hold Napoleon in the highest esteem, and that's hard to beat. But still, Washington clearly he was very ambitious, but um, he did good things with it. So it's a but I yeah I wouldn't call Washington a megalomaniac, but no, um, me neither. he he was competitive, he was ambitious, he was all those things. Um, but yeah, I, you know he gets he he gets away with it because yeah then he didn't he didn't ab abuse his power in those ways. Uh, Steve. I'm how, sorry. how humble was he really, though? I, I just an open question out there is a lot of that false humility or a careful because, you know, he was very careful on the way he just was polite and his cultural norms and, and his customs around the house. And so was that was humility part of that? I mean, his his politeness, a lot of that was, um, you know, saying be humble, you know, and so forth. Like that's a philosophy to live by. Um, how, how far to the core of his being did that go? Was that also politics? From what I know about Washington, like I visited Valley Forge. It's not too far outside of Philadelphia. And if you, you can go there and they have a recreation of the, the housing the soldiers lived in. And then the actual house that Washington lived in was is still there. And that's a mansion. And the soldiers didn't have shoes, didn't have food to eat they ate like bark and leather and stuff yeah. like that and all the meanwhile washington had fires in his house and bone china and the finest food i think that i don't know if it was just a creature of his day but he never saw an, uh, an ounce of hardship during his time and i don't i mean i don't know if that's something that 
just by his station that he would ever have lived in hardship, like if anybody else would have. But I think there was a lot of commanders who felt the pain a lot more of the regular guy than Washington ever did. Mm -hmm. And that goes along in his career. And when he lived in Philadelphia, even though slavery was illegal in Philadelphia at the time, he still had slaves. I I was going to I was wondering when that was going to come up. Um, we yeah, are, we, yeah, Washington was a slave owner. I mean, does, do we let it? We, do we let that slide? I mean, do we say okay, that was that was, he was a product of the times, and therefore, I mean, ah, you know, are we going to even yeah. even talk about that? I mean, yeah, clearly, um, yeah. I mean, you know, it's just just to, just to throw it out there, like that's. I mean, there's there's that aspect of him. There's that aspect of many many of the founding fathers, you know, which um, yeah. So it, it's still they're 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 taught as heroes in schools and all that thing. But uh, Washington had slaves, even even in Philadelphia, where it was illegal. So um, but, I mean, yeah, I guess okay. if, you, if you're gonna look at, I think you have to look at both of them in their totality of if they're great or not. And I just, I mean, yeah, I'm certainly against slavery now and then, but that was just a part of their culture. And I think he was a little bit more liberal on slavery in general, just not for himself. You know, he wanted slaves, but he I think he was probably as anti-slavery as a Virginia planter gets. Yep, that's that's a great point. Yeah, it's easy to be anti-slavery, though, when you have slaves yourself and you can say no one else can have slaves and slavery is bad. Okay, and then slavery just goes on anyway, because you're not really doing the changes like you're not practicing what you preach. So seems a bit like disingenuous to me to say that well he he was a slave owner but he wasn't a bad slave owner okay like... but well you no know, granted <laughs> i mean but now as as a man in power um how many how many less slaves by by his policies by his legislation how many less uh slaves how many less people became slaves how you know did he shrink the the market did he did he did uh, slaves end up becoming free because of his policies um, you know, I mean, did he did he curb the growth? So in that sense, as a man in power, you can look back at his legacy and say, oh, no, he did great things against slavery um, mm. while still being hypocritical of it. You know, I mean, um, no, that is a valid point that that if his legislation did end up curbing it as a whole, um, him owning. I don't know how many slaves he had, but if he if if through his actions, he set precedents and changed history in a way that hundreds of thousands of people did not become slaves or were freed um, while he himself owned dozens or I don't know, hundreds. I don't know how many he owned, you know, um, he, it was I would un- take under 200 account. anyway. Yeah, okay, he wasn't sure. The biggest I mean, wow. Owner. I mean, that's that's wow. That is so hard. I hate slavery. Yeah, I mean, that is yeah. Wow. <laughs> all, right, still... all right, all right, all right. There's a couple points <laughs> um, I want to answer that have that have sort of started okay. to drift away here. Yep, go ahead. Okay, first, Valley Forge. Valley Forge was picked as a encampment site, so part of it being chosen was that there would be a house for the officers. Um, you know, there are accounts of Washington sleeping on the ground with the men, not at Valley Forge necessarily, but the starvation and the winter set on later. So the fact that he had a house while the men had, you know, huts that they built, that in itself is not unusual because it was chosen as a winter camp. The second point that, uh, Travis, you'd brought up about, you know, his personal philosophy, um, about his, his dedication to decorum, what he did, especially humility. Yes, and that was very much part of it. Well, Washington, Washington never received a formal education, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the way one might have expected since his father was 
uh, a pretty successful uh, farmer, he unfortunately also died when Washington was very young. So part of what Washington did was, you know, he would he memorized the rules of civility and decent behavior in company and conversation, yes. and he they wrote down and put to memory 110 maxims from That's that. That's what I was thinking of, yes. Exactly. So it was his way of, he was forcing himself into gentlemanly behavior as a social medium when he was younger and when he was an up-and-comer. Mm-hmm. So is it political? Yes, it's political, but it wasn't you know, understanding that he would one day be the, the father of his country. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, just the last point with slavery, uh, I, I would point out, is he was a medium-sized slave owner. Um, and he was one of those, quote-unquote, good slave owners. A- and that's deplorable. And anyone who who was fighting for a charter like the Declaration of Independence, mm-hmm. um, you know, has to be aware of the disconnect there. Um, they're, they're not stupid men. They're not simply a product of their society. It might make realizations more difficult, but when you're expressly fighting, uh, on behalf of a charter that, you know, decries being made slaves under the tyranny of the British, and you're fighting to not be slaves on the one hand, how on the other hand you could have slavery, um, Mm -hmm. is an obvious hypocritical instance, which so many Americans at this time, including Jefferson, uh, was, you know, guilty of. Um, now his, his presidency later won't have any great to do with slavery because the constitution prohibits Congress from taking any action for, I believe, a 20 year period from its adoption. As soon as it expires, they'll stop the slave trade, the importation of slaves. Mm -hmm. But but he's um, in that, yeah, he's in that period where it's frozen. Where so, it's frozen, yeah, yeah, so okay. it's not really an issue. Personally, he is one of several large slave owners or medium-sized slave owners who uh, emancipated upon his death, gotcha. um, which is something, right. say, Jefferson did not do right? and could have. Mm-hmm. John Marshall did not. He only freed his, his body servant, the one person he gave, one of his slaves that he gave that option to. Washington, sorry to cut across you there, Thomas, but Washington was the only founding father to uh, arrange in his will for the manumission of slaves. But upon his death, the slaves were actually inherited by his relatives despite this and his wife. Some I've read certain accounts which say that his wife didn't want the family slaves to be freed. And uh, some of the slaves, some of the slaves were hers. Yeah. And were not um, governed by his uh, will. Right. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the yeah, she was, was super. Yeah. yeah, she was super rich. I don't yep. think he brought much to the party. Mm. She actually owned more slaves than he did. Like, um, I think he owned about one hundred and fifty, and she owned like two hundred. But when it came down to it, he wanted to free his, and she did not want to free hers. And I think, and then once he had died, then and she only died, I think, two years after him or something, because he seventeen ninety nine, and she died in eighteen o two. I literally read a book about Washington like mm-hmm. three or four days ago. I'm yeah. not actually that smart, so. <laughs> well, and, and it's and it's not Washington's fault either, correct? No, like, it's we, not. We, we I mean, can we all, can't, yeah. can all. That that's like Livia, you know. After Augustus died, you know, mm-hmm. is he can't be held responsible for that? No. Oh, and and the the point about him illegally taking slaves to Philadelphia uh, that was that's not true. Um, okay. Slavery itself was illegal, um, and if you had a slave in for six months or so. Uh, then you had to free them. But he would very purposefully send them home after, say, five and a half months. 
All right. Okay, so by so, the letter okay. of the law, he, he didn't yeah. bring them in, but, but by he the spirit of it. Yes, he certainly violated the spirit of the law. <laughs> All right. Well, that was a robust uh, little discussion there, um, mostly about the military. <laughs> but there, there are, we've talked a lot about so far apples and oranges. Yeah. Um, now, there's two specific points where I think they line up very well. Now, they were both involved with the overthrow of a constitutionally legitimate government. Now, in the United States, we don't really view the Constitution of 1787 as a coup d'etat. Though, by the letter, it sort of was. Uh, The delegates that summer were empowered to suggest reforms for the Articles of Confederation, and it didn't work out that way. They crafted an entirely new document. So I think it might be beneficial, then, to look at the summer of 1787 in the United States and uh, then the coup of 18 Brumaire in France. Um, So just a little background uh, on 1787. The Articles of Confederation were adopted in 1781, and uh, they were failing. They were failing badly. The document suffered from, from many flaws, uh, the inability to amend itself without uh, unanimous votes among the states being the biggest one, and also the inability for the, the national government to raise money. So it was, it was drowning in debt, um, couldn't pay its soldiers, its promised bonuses, uh, couldn't pay back the, the nations of Europe. And there was a very real possibility that states were going to begin fighting among themselves. You know, there was uh, border squabbles between Maryland and Virginia, for example, uh, over the Potomac and, and some, you know, water navigation rights. And it's not unforeseeable that things really could have devolved. Um, so Congress of the Articles of Confederation agreed to establish a convention uh, for amendment that could improve the current government. So they all met in secret conclave because the day-to-day operations were not published. And Washington was elected president of, of that body. He didn't have an active role, but his national prestige gave that body legitimacy. And his later support for the finished product gave that body legitimacy. And part of the ultimate acceptance of what's the modern constitution came from the fact that it was well known that the office of president, which was a radical institution to many Americans at the time, would be filled by the noble Washington. So his influence and involvement in the process legitimized that coup. The I suppose we can compare and contrast both when I try to do my very level best to run through the 18 Brumaire as a kind of contrast. If anyone else wants to jump in at any time and correct me, then by all means do. I'm kind of doing this from my memory of a few books that I've read and probably going on a few myths that I've heard of as well, but I'll do my level best. Um, So it kind of all starts in around March 1799. Uh, Austria declares war and France is in war again. It's back to a war footing France adopts some emergency measures, and the uh, in the April elections, the pro-war Jacobin faction returns. Um, this is around the time Napoleon returns from Egypt, and uh, even even though uh, France has su- suffered a series of reverses, there's still a kind of a feeling that Napoleon is like both factions have hailed him as like the country's savior kind of thing. So Napoleon's riding high, obviously. Um, 
and Napoleon at this stage was kind of convinced that he could capitalize upon this adoration to kind of use it to his own political advantage. So that shows his ambition, if if nothing else. Um, at this stage, there were some generals who thought that, oh, well, uh, republic- republicanism is something to be fought for, whereas some people believed that they could govern France themselves as like a dictatorship. Um, and Napoleon, there's my dog. Napoleon was a... Uh... Hi, Zach's dog. Napoleon was um, trying to kind of keep his own intentions secret even though he was fully aware of kind of what was going on and he knew that he wanted to launch some kind of coup but obviously didn't tell anyone his brother and Talleyrand uh, were very much in on it and his brother uh, Lucien Bonaparte was actually president of the Council of 500 and uh, Napoleon hoped to use this to his advantage and certainly Lucien was very much up for uh, helping his uh helping his brother along with this um so the first stage of this coup was basically to put troops around paris as a kind of insurance policy and the next plan was to persuade the directors to resign um the council of ancients and the council of 500 they were like the these are kind of like the kind of nitty-gritty aspects of it but just to kind of clear it up and, and make sure everyone kind of knows where i'm coming from um, the Council of Ancients was the upper house. The Council of 500 was the lower house. The Council of Ancients was kind of like the nobility that still remained or the kind of uh, well-to-do members of French society, whereas the Council of 500 was very hard to organize. It's kind of like the European Parliament is now in, in the EU, where it's like there's so many members and it doesn't really do anything. Um, but yeah, so the idea was to uh, kind of get the uh, get these two houses to uh, appoint a commission that would draw up a new constitution and napoleon wanted to kind of influence this uh napoleon wanted to influence this commission to kind of use it to his advantage um so the first kind of stage of this and re roundabout way um lucian persuaded the councils that uh, a coup was at hand in paris and was like you have to leave for the safety and sent them to this suburban place a little bit far away and Napoleon then was given charge as as the only man that the French could really trust. He was given charge of the of the safety of the two councils and the two upper houses, and he he was given command of all available local troops. And you might be able to see where this is going. Um, so at this stage, uh, the, so this is a, a little bit after the obviously Napoleon couldn't do this forever. So he it took a little bit of time to get everything kind of organized so while he was trying to organize stuff to launch his own coup the people he had kind of semi-exiled for their own safety to to areas outside of paris they were kind of thinking to themselves well maybe there isn't a, an actual kind of coup at hand maybe there's just a coup being launched by someone within our own kind of faction um so they started to kind of try to come back into france and and uh try to kind of set back set things back up the way they were but uh napoleon stormed into the chambers where the people were starting to meet again. So the old politicians essentially had come back into Paris and they were trying to sort things out again. Napoleon stormed back in, uh, surrounded by a force of his, uh, his veterans, if you like. Um, this was kind of like, this is kind of like the symbol where historians are like, okay, this was a military coup because he used his coterie of like most loyal kind of soldiers to kind of help him along with this. Um, yeah, so he uh, at this stage Napoleon attempts to make some kind of uh, announcement to the uh, to the ancients, the upper house, if you like, and uh, he tries to tell them that the revolution's over, and he tells them that the constitution is kind of invalid, and that 
that it needs to be brought to a more kind of more kind of like relevant footing along alongside the situation that France is facing. And he says, I think he says something along the lines of you yourselves have destroyed this constitution. Um, uh, no one has the respect of the constitution kind of thing. And he tries to paint it out as their fault. He tries to do it in the Council of 500, but it was even more hostile. And his his uh, his his veterans do the same thing where they enter, enter the Council of 500 and everyone's like, I can't believe Napoleon's doing this. How could we not have seen this coming kind of thing? Um <laughs> Uh, he get he gets a bit of um he actually gets into a bit of a a, a scuffle with some of the members. Um, <laughs> uh, I read one account that said Napoleon fainted, but I don't know if that's true. Um, yeah, so his, his brother Lucian calls on the people his uh, calls on his veterans to defend Napoleon when he's in this council of five hundred, and and they do. Napoleon escaped, but uh, from the hostile reception in the council of five hundred, but only through the use of his own veterans. So at this stage, the council of five hundred tried tried to declare Napoleon an outlaw, but it doesn't really work because the veterans are terrorizing the council of five hundred, and you have like politicians being faced with veterans, so it doesn't go that well. So the Council of Ancients at this stage uh, overrule the Council of 500 by passing a decree which adjourns the Council of 500 for three months and the Council of Ancients appoint Napoleon, having been persuaded by force to appoint Napoleon. They appoint Napoleon as their leader for uh, three months or so. And uh, at this stage, Napoleon, along with a few other important French VIPs, is named uh, a provisional consul. Um, but at this stage, he kind of Napoleon is is recognized as a definite figurehead, even though he's kind of named as one among many, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so the use of military force is kind of seen as the most significant part of this whole thing. The fact that Napoleon didn't go and like march into either of the upper or lower houses and say. Like, he didn't use, like, a speech or anything to make people declare him. He used actual brute force, which is why it's called the coup rather than the <laughs> whatever else it would be called had he not used military force. But um, he essentially created a new constitution after these series of events, um, and it gave him, as one of the members of the commission, greater power. And he eventually, over over the space of a few months, after getting the approval of the, the Senate, um, which was another body. There was a lot of bodies at the stage. There was the Senate and a state council, and I think a tribunal as well, and there was also loads of commissions. This was what happened because of the French Revolution. Everything was just all over the place. Um, so he basically used the institutions and commissions that were there to kind of give himself more and more powers. And through that, in very in a variety of unsavory ways, and continued with the with the factor that the forces were surrounding Paris, and he was very much relying on their support. He was able to eventually increase his role to the point that he was the de facto dictator, really. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's kind of. <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping that that's right. Uh, and, by and all means. Well, well, yeah. One question I have immediately is okay. So Napoleon instantly, yeah, that's a military coup. He came to power militarily, um, but. How decayed was the revolution at that point? Didn't something crass need to happen anyways? Mm. Uh, That's a red herring, Travis. Uh, is I mean, it? Yeah, uh, something no, needed no, to happen. Yeah, no, seriously. But did I'm, you I'm need saying, to do... A... Okay, yeah, because yeah, obviously I could, I could, in this scenario, list a dozen pro-Washington points. Come on. Or even pro-Congress and uh, that they were justified. Yeah, no, clearly. Again, apples and oranges. But um, give me a better alternative. 
because because sure, I'm, this is not a red herring. I'm sure there is one. I want to hear it. I mean, I I, I want to bring Steve Guerra into the conversation, uh, but I, I just want to point out real quick that how many times had the French government changed since 1789? So, so, so many. The, the legal yeah. process for doing so was obviously available to them. Mm. This is the way Napoleon chose to change the government because it benefited Napoleon. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, okay, but were were the changes made by the government ever uh, like effectual in the last you know i mean the the revolution at this point i'm just saying they just would have gone to another cycle another new constitution another round of violence another you know so uh napoleon broke this cycle for the sake of france you know and nobody else and nobody else for the sake of france did, did that need to happen um i i as much as i am uh, an admirer of napoleon i think you couldn't really argue that he did it for France. I think at the end of the day, he was doing it because he saw the opportunity available to him and he thought that he could gain power through this way. And another thing as well, I mean, yes, Travis, I fully appreciate where you were coming from. And I think had Napoleon not done this, uh, the old, uh, the thing that Napoleon toppled, whatever kind of governmental style you could call that, that was certainly going to fall at some point and be replaced by something else. But the fact that Napoleon recognized this and didn't choose to kind of wait for that to happen and sort of spearheaded it himself with military force, I mean, he definitely knew what he was doing. He uh, he certainly, he didn't weep for the old government and he, he knew that by using the force and by using his uh, popularity, he'd be able to first get to a stage where he could take advantage of the situation and then gradually slowly push out all the other competition and have himself Mm -hmm. essentially the dictator. Mm -hmm. Steve, do you have anything to add? I think that it was, it kind of comes down to the difference in the revolutions. The, the French revolution was so radical and it swung back and forth. I mean, you have all that stuff in the Vendee where people are regularly being, uh, you know, mass murdered on daily basis and where in the, there was crappy things that happened in the American revolution by partisans in each side, but it doesn't seem like it was for the most part, a, a, uh, what do you, what would you call it? A strategy of each side for mass murder of right. their opponents. And yeah, at the end of the day, there were, uh, bushwhack killings, especially in the Southern theater. And a lot of people did move, but a lot of that was self-directed moving too. They wanted to be a part of the British empire. So they moved a couple of miles away into Canada. I think it was just a lot less nasty of a fair that way, the American revolution. So when it comes down to, um, 1787, most of the parties, yeah, they were bitterly divided, but they weren't bitterly divided on that wide of a spectrum, and they could come together. The Constitution wasn't that radically different for the people who were pretty against it, for the people who were for it. Mm-hmm. So Patrick Henry would disagree with you wildly. But then after <laughs> they came up with the Ten Amendments, he was uh, he was kind of okay with it. He was he didn't love it, he but did he wasn't become... going. Yeah, he did become a a pretty staunch supporter after the Bill of Rights. And he wasn't going to, you know, he went through the system to get the Bill of Rights. He didn't raise up an army and go and kill everybody Mm -hmm. who was against it, or against his position, rather. So in general, though, this is for the group, we think that the legal form of toppling a government is preferable over the military, or no? 
So in Napoleon's defense, <laughs> the, the very first thing I said was Napoleon betrayed the revolution. Okay. But now after, now we, now that we have a better picture of what the French revolution was compared to the American revolution, is that necessarily even a bad thing? Okay. Um, mm. But yeah, otherwise, yeah. Washington was a tool of Congress. You know, Washington was seen as a way to get legitimacy um, for Congress's ideas and, as such, I think, you know, given the, um, they, they chose Washington and Washington then, you know, served his two terms and stepped down. He was in every way an opposite of Napoleon after that. He wasn't a dictator, oh, yeah. but, you know. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, apples and oranges again. But Napoleon, again, even the revolutions to say Na Napoleon betrayed the revolution. Well, yeah, maybe that's a good thing. Um, mm. Yeah, and I think with Napoleon, it just sounds like it wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't a good thing. It was just a thing. Something was going to happen. Yeah. And that was the thing that happened. Mm -hmm. Everyone was doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then everything that happened after, Washington was clearly a, a wise choice versus Napoleon was that megalomaniac. He just... Yeah, so. I mean, it is. A, it does come down to a difference in character. But like, like you said, no one was forcing Napoleon to do what he did. Whereas you could argue that Washington was more of a tool of Congress. Yep. I mean, I don't know how much Washington was like. No, I don't want to be a part of this. Right. But uh, yeah. but Napoleon certainly he had no qualms about squashing the the mm -hmm. revolution. But just as he didn't weep for the Yale government, no one was like. Well, Napoleon can't do this. The revolution's been so good to us, and the government is so stable. Just look at, just look at how clean our guillotine has been all these years. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you can't. Yeah, I, I, I would have, I would be cautious in saying that the coup was a good thing, considering everything that happened after with Napoleon. But certainly at the time, no one was, no one was upset. Well, I mean, yeah. I'm sure some people were upset, but it wouldn't have been seen as a terrible thing within France, especially considering Napoleon's popularity the successes he'd had and the hope that the French people were beginning to invest in him mm -hmm. after all those years of defeats and turmoil. Mm -hmm. And Thomas, I'm not uh, too far out of the bounds by saying that Washington, he didn't take over. He wasn't forcing what was happening happening at the Constitutional Convention, but he wanted to be there so that he could be seen as being a part of it and that his his stamp was on it. Uh, he was a personal supporter of the idea that the Articles of Confederation weren't working, um, that they were too weak, they were too decentralized. Um, they needed uh, there needed to come into existence a a more central, uh, I think, as they would have said, vigorous government needed to come into existence. Um, you know, his association with Alexander Hamilton was certainly continuing. You know, he, Hamilton had been an aide de camp during the war. Hamilton was was very much in favor of scrapping the articles. Um, James Madison uh, is actually much more of a nationalist at this stage and was also a confidant of Washington's at this stage. They would later be political opponents. And, and he was also telling Washington, like, we need to change what's going on and we need you. Uh, this idea of Washington being the indispensable man um, you know, is, is evident here because he had but retired. Washington, Washington didn't have his sword to anybody's neck saying that X, Y, and Z had to be in no, the document. No, no, he had retired. He had ostentatiously retired his military commission, gone back to Mount Vernon. This was very mm -hmm. much a Cincinnatus moment, um, you know, where he was called from his fields, you know, um, and, and he will very shortly uh, make an allusion 
to, and there's a quote roughly I'm paraphrasing here, my steps to high office are accompanied with feelings not unlike that of a criminal on his way to execution. He was very reluctant now, to was come that out a, of retirement. Is that a true, true reluctance? Ah, or was he, Words out of my I mean, mouth. <laughs> yeah, is that the, or was it that he was portraying himself as Cincinnatus? I mean, everybody at that point in the American Revolution wanted to portray themselves as the Cincinnatus, the... Yeah. I don't you know, I don't think so because he only wanted to do one term. And again, after his first term, okay. Hamilton and now Jefferson, the Secretary of Treasury, the Secretary of State, are saying you can't retire. The government will hang together if they have you to hang on to, I think is a direct quote from Jefferson. So he didn't want his second term. He wanted to retire. He reluctantly had a second term. After a second term, after he deals with some of the things we're gonna talk about in just a minute, you know. He's had it. He's like, you cannot convince me to stay. Because if, you know, to me, why why does he retire after his second term if it's a false humility? Why not go another term? He'll die in office. You know, he'll die in 1799. Yeah, 1799. You know, so why didn't he do the Cromwell move? You know, that was something that he would have been aware of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That that paradigm. That That's just my opinion. But let's get into, you know, the fact that shortly after these coups, that they both became the chief executives in their respective civil governments. So I think um, I think we've been starting with Napoleon. So why don't we get into to some of Napoleon's achievements as, um, you know, what first consul, um, hmm. later emperor, I guess. Uh, yeah. so you can take it across the spectrum. Um, so we want to get us started with those. Yeah, I mean, personally, I've come across uh, Napoleonic law or his reforms and those kind of things in in the history of Germany, and that and um, some of those reform. Okay, I mentioned the uh, emancipation of the Jews; um, those are super significant. Um, but even just like insisting on the metric system, which uh, across w- when Germany was, I mean, yeah, like at the time before Napoleon took it over, Germany was I don't know a hundred eleven eleven hundred. Um, miniature states principalities and this and that and and it was just a mess of customs and different measurement systems and everything and napoleon just came around and said okay you guys are all um you know met on the metric system now and you guys also have to let jews into your cities and and they have full rights and and um he he you know laid a worth on education it was the first time that some areas of germany and um holland and so forth had to pick last names and a lot of those were in defiance the ones they ended up picking were in defiance of napoleon but he he left definitely left his mark on history in um far outside of france i guess um so those come to mind but but yeah go ahead somebody else no i would say um I think this is not necessarily domestic, but the way that he treated other countries comes to mind, such as the Duchy of Warsaw is a big one for me because uh, I'm quite interested in the history of Poland. And I think the Poland had only been really partitioned to the extent that it had disappeared from the map of Europe in 1795. So people knew of Poland and the Poles certainly were very loyal to Napoleon. And this is this is fairly well known whenever people talk about Napoleon, they always talk about his his loyal Polish contingent that followed him everywhere and that he had a, a Polish aide-de-camp and he had a Polish this and a Polish that. And to what extent that was, uh, he to what extent he genuinely believed in Polish freedoms and he was doing it for genuine reasons and he was doing it for the Poles rather than for his own image or for his own self-interest, I think you could debate. But the fact that he did give the Poles 
a sense of freedom for at least the time that he was able to. And the fact that he gave them the Duchy of Warsaw, like strategically speaking, it, it wasn't that convenient for Napoleon because he had to garrison it with French troops and he had to support it economically and there wasn't very much infrastructure there. So I think you couldn't really say, oh, he just set up the Duchy of Warsaw to bother the Russians or that kind of thing. But the Russians hated it anyway. So as long as the Duchy of Warsaw was there, he wasn't really able to keep relations with the Russians very, uh, very well. So I think you could say that, I mean, the Duchy of Warsaw and how he treated the Poles is a good example of something Napoleon did that was fundamentally good. Anything that frees. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Oppressed mm-hmm. peoples from their oppressor is a good thing in my book anyway. Mm-hmm. Steve? I don't know a ton about his domestic policies, but it does seem like the Code Napoleon really changed mm-hmm. things. That I mean that that's uh, that's the basis for basically every single justice system and legal system in the world besides English speaking countries, and that it is a pretty decent system of law and it it corrected a lot of mistakes and a lot of problems that all these gazillion little municipalities yeah. and countries had. To add to that, just the fact that a lot of especially these German states kept his reforms. Um, that that does say something. So, you know, they were happy mm. to get rid of the Fre- the French in general, but hey, um, yeah, let's keep the metric system. Let's keep the the customs. They they didn't, you know, they, they kept a lot of the customs open and, um, cur- you know, currencies changed. The, yeah, the Holy Roman Empire, that Byz- Byzantine bureaucracy was replaced by a Napoleonic bureaucracy, um, yeah. which was far more efficient, you know, and you see traces of that in Germany all the way until today. I mean, absolutely. So Napoleonic reforms are, are yeah, I mean, that, that is telling, I would say, just the fact that they kept them. I mean, I think everything that Napoleon did really kicked the door in for modernity in Europe, yeah. for yeah. better and for worse. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you have to argue as well. Even you could say this happened inadvertently, but the fact that he abolished the Holy Roman Emperor and, in a sense, ended the Holy Roman Empire brings us into yeah. German unification in the later years. And yep. I'm sure Travis would would like to talk a bit about that. But um, before he does, uh, the the idea that he sell he sells the Louisiana Purchase as well, like that's a major that's a event one. in American yeah. history in itself. Mm-hmm. So. He yeah, also institutes, I, I he institutes qu- the League of Honor, Legion of Honor as well and yeah. tax codes and roads and sewer systems and loads of different things. I got a question for you guys on the Louisiana Purchase. and, and So should we, should we talk about that now or, or are we saving that for later? <laughs> uh, we, we can bring that in because that's nothing to do with Washington. Basically. Um, if you want to bring yeah, that in. Yeah, right. I mean, so basically I'm just wondering, was that, what? what's your opinions? Is it a blunder for France? Was it short-sighted or... Um, was that just a great thing for the U.S.? And so that's, you know, that's that. What, how, was that how was that viewed? Was that a good thing Napoleon did? Was it a short-sighted thing he did? Um, I think it depends. It was a great thing for the United States. Right, right. I, yeah. I, so, I think Jefferson was uh, flabbergasted. From U.S. That, history, that, that was on I'm, the I'm table. very clear. Yeah, we're just happy to have it. So uh, from U.S. history, obviously, but from Napoleon's point of view, you know, which, you know, totally ignoring Washington anyways in the, at this point. But from Napoleon's point of view, um, was that wise or, you know, did France, think, re- did France regret that or not really? I don't think I think as far as Napoleon was concerned, Europe was his theater. So mm-hmm. there was no real point in pretending that holding on to America. I mean, he tried for a while to wage war in a kind of guerrilla campaign, but there, like, because the United States was free and because the Jay Treaty had been signed between the United States and Britain and Washington had actually played a role in uh, making sure that the French officials, when they were sent at the start of the revolution, he made sure that they were expelled. So there, as far as Napoleon was concerned, I think there was no point in pretending that by holding on to a portion of America, he could damage Britain in any real sense. So I think he thought, well, mm-hmm. why, why bother? Why don't I just reinvest the resources at home instead and focus on the on the fronts that really matter to me mm-hmm. and i think i mean i think probably in the mixed bag it was a mixed bag for france in the long run because yeah it probably would have been good to have had that but it was always sparsely populated right. by the french i think the only big yeah. city between after new orleans was st louis and that was not a big city at right. all mm. and that area had gone back and forth with front with Spain. So I don't think that they ever had like a real connection to it. And after French Canada had gone away, there just wasn't, or well, it hasn't gone away, but it wasn't French anymore. Part of France that they just didn't have their heart in that sort of, in dealing with that massive chunk of land. And probably in the long run, it was a good thing to just dump it off for whatever you could get out of it. Yeah. I want to bring a point in here because, um, you know, it's going to be a critique of Napoleon. Uh, We're talking about all his great international diplomacy. The lands comprising the Louisiana Purchase had been Spanish. Uh, They'd only come into French hands, uh, you know, as a custodian. Mm-hmm. So as in as in so many times as you see over the course of his career, you just can't trust Napoleon. Hmm. He was holding it for Spain, and he sold it to the United States. Uh, in general, okay. you know, you talk about his his international standing. You know, how many years of peace did did he see? Now, not all not all the wars of the coalitions were at his instigation, but you know, by any means. But the failure to keep peace, the failure to say the peace of Amiens. All that's on Napoleon. Oh yeah, like, like you can't say that he is a 
internationally trustworthy figure that people are dealing with and expecting to deal with in good faith. And no I way. think that's a real criticism of his leadership. Oh yeah, I will I will hold my hands up as a Napoleonic admirer and say absolutely he was terrible and the whole self-image thing that I tried to allude to about the polls, I mean, had he even tried to do that, he wasn't doing it very well elsewhere. Even the fact that the British thought that they couldn't trust him, which was true, uh, he wasn't very good at representing France internationally because he had been presented as a warmonger and he fulfilled that picture time and time again, even even in the way that he almost always refused to give ground when negotiations were begun. And there was many, many chances he had to, even though it would have been difficult uh, prestige-wise for France to have given ground, such as parts of Italy or any like anything like that, had he truly wanted peace, he could have, in the early 1800s, before the war really, really intensified with Napoleon at, at its at its head, he could have organized a system whereby France gave certain amounts of land and thereby gained peace. So I think I agree with you completely, Thomas. I mean, it's it's not really like he he certainly should be held responsible for the fact that the, I mean they're called the Napoleonic Wars. Um, that that in themselves should show that he was responsible. Um, yeah, that like absolutely, I agree. Okay. Um, any further comments on Napoleon, or should we transition to talk a little bit about George? I'm good with talking about George. Yeah, yeah. we can move on to George. On the other foot, um, you know, George Washington was the first president of the United States, duly and democratically, as far as the American system for electing presidents is democratic, uh, <laughs> democratically elected. Um, you know, and, and he came into office and was very cognizant of the fact that that he was, you know, the nationally centralizing figure. Um, now, I think his great achievements as a leader uh, boiled down to his intelligence with delegation. Now, as I alluded to earlier, he didn't have a formal education, and he was very aware of that. Um, he was not a, a stupid man. Uh, a lot of times he's characterized as an oafish uh, figurehead, and that's not true. But he didn't have a formal education, and he, he so couldn't compete with someone like Hamilton and uh, Jefferson when it came to you know theoretical uh, essay writing. And I think his great achievement was bringing in this brain trust, Hamilton at Treasury, most significantly, Jefferson at State, which could have worked out if Jefferson's character was better. And for all the good press that Jefferson gets over time, his, his behavior in the 1790s uh, is atrocious. Um, you know, so bringing together uh, this brain trust is a very important aspect of making sure that some of the best minds in the nation we're running the country and really trusting Hamilton, creating the National Bank and getting a, a solid economic underpinning to the absolutely anarchic situation that the United States was dealing with financially uh, is one of his great achievements. And it's really one that underpins the United States even to today, that, that initial federalist push to uh, put some of those institutions in place. Now, we don't have the National Bank anymore, but, you know, the whole idea of the federal deficit, which, you know, some people have a problem with, um, and the assumption of the state debts that it included, you know, really put the American federal government in a position where it could succeed. Um, I feel like the other thing that he did that was so important was maintaining neutrality when... France and Britain are engaged in 
at this time, the wars of the French Revolution, uh, the United States could easily have been drawn in with its alliance to France and been demolished. Mm -hmm. And everything that they'd achieved could have been undone. He took a huge amount of criticism, mostly directed by the Jeffersonian forces, in sending Jay to Britain to make sure the United States didn't go to war. And he was eviscerated for it. So these are what I think are some of his greatest performances while he was president. Yeah. And anyone I, want to pick up on that? I, well, okay. So about the, yeah, because I have that written down too, that um, that he didn't want to get up involved in the European wars, particularly France, England. And this is one example I've written down for the precedents he set that, that later presidents would follow, that the country as a whole would follow. Um, not all presidents, you know, followed what Washington did, but there was this idea that America shouldn't get involved in, in European wars. And we have this like, you know, Monroe and, you know, not even the, the, even the popular idea kind of took hold. And, and the same thing happened with the beginning of World War I and World War II, that that's a European war. Let's stay out of it. At least let's stay out of it as long as we can. And yeah, Washington was the first to really kind of say, yeah, this would be a bad idea for us at this time. And some other precedents just to kind of, you know, finish off my list is I have, you know, he's the guy that um, we still call the president, Mr. President. That was Washington instead of, you know, something far more, you know, his, his, what his, his highness his something, you know, something far more royalist, something far more the dear leader. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, and I, and I think that's, that's, that's a great thing. I really like that about the, the president's office is that he's Mr. President. And, and uh, yeah, that's definitely, that's, that's one of his precedents. Um, the, the fact that he had a cabinet and the way that uh, Tom said that he delegated to the right people. Absolutely. So even just the idea of the cabinet and getting, um, in many cases, people that are smarter than yourself in the right positions and, you know, delegating appropriately and running a government that way and not running it as an autocrat or a dictator. Um, you know, so there we see a difference between Napoleon and, and Washington to a, to a huge degree. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah. Washington did a lot of, you know, and then of course the precedent of, of stepping down after two terms that didn't need to be reinforced until FDR because people just did that, you know, because Washington was such a figure. So mm -hmm. not only was he not a, a non-Napoleon, he and uh, he set the stage. He set the precedent of not being like that. And so you know the president has never had that kind of dictatorial power. Let's say so. Oh, that's an important precedent for sure. So um, yeah, go ahead, someone else. <laughs> Well, I just this thing just came to my mind, and we can do whatever we want with it. But I would it be fair to say that Washington was the antithesis of Napoleon because of how he acted in terms of getting power and that kind of thing? I yeah, personally I think, think so. Yeah, that's not too far from the truth. I'd say, yeah. No, completely. They had completely different uh -huh. goals. Yeah, governmental goals. Yeah, yeah. One put himself there; the other tried to avoid it, and then you know. Uh, definitely yeah. stepped down and set the tone for the rest. Napoleon also set the tone. You know, he, he set the tone for a, a, a dynasty, an imperial dynasty. And that's yeah. what France went through. So, um, oh, yeah, black and white in that case. Um, sure. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'd like to add to that as well in terms of creating a dynasty. I mean, yes, the situation was different in America compared to in Europe, but Napoleon put all of his relatives on various different thrones Whereas uh, Washington was never under any kind of illusions that he could place, say, I mean, right. that he could place any of his relatives in positions in Europe like that. 
he never had um, the temptation, you know. So no, yeah, it might right. it might not be it might be because he never had the opportunity. I mean, uh-huh. I don't know how whether he had offered like any kind of his any of his relatives up any of those offers would have been taken, but. Even insofar as as far as I'm aware, he never had that ambition. I think strikes me he he knew that he wasn't going to be a dictator, so he never really tried to be. Whereas mm-hmm. Napoleon wanted to be mm-hmm. all supreme ruler and tried to be from the beginning, really. And I, I think that really comes down to at least Washington's sense of personal honor, which which he took very seriously. He like he I think consciously perceived himself as noble in the old Roman pre Caesar way, like back to Cincinnatus. Uh, like in that manner um, where the greatest honor you could have was being acknowledged to be the first man in Rome. And and that in a way is better than, you know, your perpetual power. It's, you know, everlasting esteem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I don't want to take too much away from Napoleon because, you know, Napoleon was absolutely brilliant. Um, I, I think he was probably one of the, smartest individuals to ever hold supreme power mm-hmm. um you know and and i can't say that you know maybe he didn't delegate as much because he was the smartest man in the room in, in many many instances i guess he, i think it's probably Talleyrand. yeah interesting um point. yeah you probably should have listened think... to Talleyrand more but but yeah so washington was was conscious of the fact right. that he wasn't the smartest yeah I think it's interesting that Napoleon culturally, too, for a guy who started out, I don't, he didn't speak French until he was, I think it may have been that he went into the army, that he only spoke the Catalan dialect, and that really it was started with him, this homogenization of Europe, that the countries like France, where French became the language, not a hundred different dialects mm-hmm. of that were some were French, some weren't dialects of French. And I mean, that was in Germany and Italy and Spain, where these countries really zeroed in on becoming nation states mm-hmm. for better or for worse. Again, I mean, I think probably in the long run, that was a better thing, especially a lot of what Napoleon was about is coming into fruition now. Yeah. Uh, like the the nationalist legacy Napoleon left behind, whether whether he did it on purpose or not, setting up the Confederation of the Rhine, unifying huge chunks of Italy together, that kind of thing. I mean, can is that is that a positive or a negative? I mean, that could be debated in of itself, but yeah, yeah. that's conversation all in itself. Yeah, because yeah. I'm I'm strictly not a nationalist, but. Um, the influence was so great that even the unifying language in Germany wasn't uh, high German per se, you know, yet that that kind of became that way in the 19th century. Um, but the the official language, the, the court language, the one of prestige was French. And yeah, was that because of Napoleon? Was that because of just, you know, France as a domineering economic power? Uh, I mean, clearly, I, I, I mean, I would lean towards it was a, a big part because of Napoleon and 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 uh, Germans just grasping to this uh, standardization of things. And mm-hmm. which that you still see in Germany today. I mean, you can buy one size window and it has the, that kind of handle and, you know, all houses are white. And the Holy Roman Empire was just not like that. And, and that's Germans that on place. one end of the. Well, let me just finish one thing. Oh, is yeah, that Germans, sure. Germans on one end of the empire, um, especially like if if um, Austrians would go up to the Palatinate or something, they they couldn't understand each other if they spoke. Um, you know, so what they would do was speak French. And <laughs> I mean, that's that's so that that's just one symptom of how important this 
um, standardization of Napoleon was, I guess, is what is my point. And that's yeah. something that parallels with Washington and Bonaparte. It wasn't all Washington with centralizing things, and it, things weren't centralized to the degree that they were with France, but that there is, there's a balance between local power and national power. And at that time, there was a much greater need to have a stronger central control over things than there was to have individual municipalities and individual localities having, they were, they held so much power. Like you said, somebody who was from Northwestern France couldn't speak to somebody from southwestern France or, mm-hmm. you know, all right. over the place. And that really, that drew people into the center. And I, I mean, we're all still trying to figure out in the end, if that was a good thing for Europe, is that a good thing for the U.S.? I guess we'll see. When I was a kid in Germany, I, I had the choice between learning French and Latin after English. I mean, it was still, you know, to that degree that it's French is, is significant. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve, you just led us into the whiskey rebellion how how, what how would you guys say because you know what what was the effect of washington's actions on the whiskey rebellion as far as like unifying the nation as far as and even you know should we talk about washington as kind of also setting a precedent for building a federal presence uh compromising north and south sort of thing I think uh, dear Thomas and I are going to disagree on this one. Right. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> likely, likely. Uh, let me just start with, with what I think about the Whiskey Rebellion. So that arose out of some of the Hamiltonian reforms, which you know, put uh, attacks on whiskey in place. And obviously the farmers in Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania, uh, weren't happy about that. That's what they did with a lot of their excess grain that they couldn't ship um, to Eastern ports before it rotted. They you know, distilled it into whiskey. Um, and it was a good source of income for him. Now, when the uprisings first started happening, you know, there was, they dusted off the, uh, that old chestnut of no taxation without representation. <laughs> the first thing Washington did was say, hold on a second. Now, that may have worked when you didn't have a representative in Parliament. But last time I checked, there's two senators from Pennsylvania. There's however many congressional seats from Pennsylvania. You had electoral votes that went into electing this president. You guys are well represented. You can't say you don't have representation, and therefore this taxation is not fair. So what this, what his choosing to raise, raise an army and march out to Pennsylvania does is really enforce something that's often, I find, historically different between the United States and Europe, the rule of law and not the rule of men. You know, European Europe's long history with, you know, the Roman emperors and such, I think it's not as well established. And I could be wrong. I don't live there. Mm. There's European <laughs> precedents, but yeah, sure. But in, in the briefer history of the United States, it's never yeah. really been a question. And this is one of right. the foundational moments. Um, so he marched out there and how he handled it was perfect. There weren't executions. You know, he had the ringleaders arrested. Just the show of force, everyone was like, okay, I'm, I'm good, don't worry. But he had the ringleaders arrested, and he, and he pardoned them. So it showed, it showed that the federal government was working. Mm-hmm. It showed that this is a strong enough government that you're not going to have things like Shays' Rebellion get out of hand, where private people, private individuals had to raise private armies to put it down because the uh, Articles of Confederation were so inept. 
that this new federal government had the energy to put down challenges to law, but it also wasn't going to be excessive. It was also being used fairly. Yeah. And I think that that's an important instance that, that demonstrates some of those things. Yes. And I had that as on one of my list of precedents because um, this really set the stage for for saying uh, for displaying kind of how the U.S. federal government is going to deal with these sort of things uh, to some degree. And, and yeah, so, you know, setting a precedent saying, yeah, the government can put down rebellions and can and can act as a federal force. Um, so, yeah, how that compares to Napoleon, I don't know. But it does show that Washington um, built, you know, set the president for the U.S., gave it a national government, consolidated national power. Um is maybe the closest comparison you could have with Napoleon is that, you know, Washington did do that. Um, but yeah, I think it's an important thing to bring up as, as an example of what Washington did as a leader. Steve, did you want to give your interpretation of those events? I Uh-oh. think that he, it was handled fairly well, but I think in the end they didn't with the Shays rebellion and the whiskey rebellion. And there was like a bunch of those rebellions. That's one of the things that could have become a major problem in the United States going forward is that it was so dominated by the mercantilists in the East Coast that there could have been such huge problems that I don't think Washington handled it perfectly. It was handled better than it could have, because if they had gone in and killed and did hangings, then it probably would have been another revolution just a few years later, because there were so many people who were harmed by Hamilton's policies and all this taxation coming from the the central government. Yeah, I mean, I guess it could have become Washington's ulcer, the way Spain mm-hmm. was for Napoleon. Mm-hmm. You know, that he handled it pretty well, but those were things that were outside of his. He couldn't leave it completely go, just like the Newburgh. So maybe, yeah, this was a good thing for Washington. He didn't, he handled the Newburgh conspiracy. He handled that really well. And he did handle these ones pretty well It was for circumstances that weren't directly of his, his making that Hamilton was really a man of the East Coast mercantilists. And he didn't really care much about what people in the hinterlands were all about. Uh, there's one other aspect domestically that, that I think says a lot about the difference between Napoleon and, and George Washington, and that's a free press. Uh, Washington, um, particularly once Jefferson hired James Callender to just eviscerate him in, in Republican-run papers, never shut a paper down. Mm-hmm. He, let, he, he abided by the First Amendment of the Constitution, which includes freedom of press and freedom of speech. Um, and I'm pretty sure the Declaration of Rights and Man includes similar things that uh, a person like Napoleon could have pointed to to say, no, no, these are your human rights. But does anyone have a count of the number of newspapers shut down by Napoleon for criticizing him? I think I think Napoleon's an interesting case because outwardly he said that a freedom of the press like he said that personal freedoms were a good thing so long as personal freedoms didn't include a freedom to criticize him. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, like I don't know an exact number but I certainly know that he he definitely did there was no real basis of criticism in France against Napoleon. I mean part of that was because Napoleon for a long time was so successful but also because he shut it down. So I think it may have also 
tied into Washington's character that if he really did want to be an absolute dictator or absolute monarch, then maybe he would be shutting things down. But it probably rolled off of his back. It probably hurt him personally that um, Jefferson and his um, his political enemies, but people who were his friends, you know, that he had known for so long were attacking him personally. But it didn't uh, harm him professionally. Mm. Travis, do you have any? Yeah, I mean, isn't that just kind of, that was the American way at the time, right? It's just to write these vicious attacks about your political opponents. So I think you needed to be thick-skinned. And, and um, yeah, Washington, it's, that is a great virtue that I, that I would value personally, is to be the butt of a joke and, or the, 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 you know, the butt of bad criticism and just let that roll off your back. And um, the way Washington did that was admirable, I think, you know, there's there's many other people that are that are great at that. And Napoleon, yeah, he was just his ego would not allow for that in any shape or form. Again, it's hard to compare because you're also um, if you talk about shutting down like German newspapers, well, you know, he was occupying them. So that's you know, that's that's different. I, I mean, that's apples and oranges again. But yeah, definitely a point for Washington there. I got a question for you. Does does Washington have an example, a, a something comparable here? Um, Napoleon sort of kept dossiers like Hoover style on all of the people around him. And uh, is the, first of all, is that a fact um, that Napoleon kind of gathered dirt on everybody around him, even his, you know, close, close confidants? Um, is that true? First of I, all? I- I believe so. It wasn't Fouché still in charge of the, the French yeah, like, police? Yeah, sort of a secret police situation, you know, Gestapo kind of thing. Um, well, that's a bad comparison. Yeah, even, Gestapo's. Even, <laughs> yeah, even, even, okay, a Hoover, an FBI sort of, um, but to a lesser degree. But um, I, that, I kind of wrote that down as a minus for Napoleon, that he was very suspicious. It feeds into kind of what I think of his character of just being suspicious of everybody, being not quite Stalin level, but um, being maybe insecure um, you know, that often came up again. I don't want to, um, there's this bias from British propaganda at the time, propaganda, I don't know, but British media at the time, um, making him very short, making him, you know, very, um, you know, yelling and screaming. And, um, I did read that on one-on-one encounters, he could make, you know, other world leaders bow because of just his one-on-one presence, Mm-hmm. Um, his domineering character and aspect, and he could also—he was also very charismatic. He could just make people shut up and sit in awe of him um, <laughs> in a one-on-one encounter. So, um, you know, where am I, where am I going with this? I don't know. But um, uh, for his personal leadership, so was that? Did Washington was he paranoid? He didn't have really have a reason to be. Um, I just have that written down as a negative for Napoleon and no Washington comparison, I'd say. Well, right. I, for for I Washington. Think, I'm sorry, Steve, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, this is quick. I just think um, what it boils down to is with their personal ambitions being different and their political circumstances yeah. being so different, Yeah, uh-huh. a lot of things that wa- that Napoleon almost had to do, Washington really didn't have to. Right, yeah. Uh, that That's right, and, and I don't want to... And I'm not going to say that Washington wasn't capable of it. Washington ran a very sophisticated spy network during the war. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he was able to do stuff like that. But there's no indication that I've ever read. And institutionally, I don't think the federal government had the capabilities at the time right. um, to to have any such thing. Yeah, my closest um, comparison for Washington is a plus, And that is that he kept 
relationships, you know, like Lafayette in, in France. He kept con- uh, connections, ties to the to the Navy. Um, his 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 um, influence was he used it very effectively. All you know, I mean, yeah, but in a positive light compared to Napoleon's like domineering sort of sort of ways. Yeah, any of the Bo- people, both very charismatic, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think over and over again, you see uh, as, as a term of uh, personal generosity, I guess, from Washington is he wished he could help Lafayette. He couldn't. Right. He couldn't reach him. Uh, but he did manage to help Thomas Paine and bring mm-hmm. him back to the United States and, and provide and make sure he got set I'm, up with some lands. I'm going to do a sneaky little plug here. A Bohemian podcast did a great episode on Lafayette about his he was imprisoned in, in Moravia in the Czech Republic. So that's where he spent his final days. Go on, sorry. <laughs> oh, and um, and the last example I can think of is uh, Citizen Genet, who mm. basically came to the United States uh, as a revolutionary diplomat, uh, held up two middle fingers to Washington the entire time he was here. Uh, but then there was a change of government in France, and he then applied for asylum uh, to the mm-hmm. United States, and and Washington uh, made sure that he got that asylum. Wow. Um, so I think, again, that's a personal difference between Washington and Napoleon when it comes to their characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you could even say we really kind of ignored Washington's pre-Revolutionary War career. He may have been forced to learn some humility after uh, where he started, basically started the Seven Years' War at Fort Duquesne, and he lost brutally there. I think, you know, that his upbringing and that his couple of times where he tried to be brash, he got slammed down pretty hard. You know, I think that's a great point. Um, Their ages when they came to power were dramatically different. Washington was a much more mature, much older gentleman. Uh, He was in his 40s when he when he assumed control of the Continental Army, where Napoleon in, in Italy, which was his first, you know, leadership campaign was i think in his late 20s mm. yeah but he was a, yeah he was a shooting star and didn't have to yeah. that humility along the way that's a great point yeah mm. uh-huh. you know when you're a washington and you come you know you ride out and you're going to be the big man and then you know you just face such utter utter disaster but you're still able to pull yourself out of it that's got to teach a couple of lessons down the road yeah, I mean, uh, you could argue I'm not trying to make this an anti-Napoleon thing, and I will come up with some uh, some pro-Napoleon points in 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 time. But after 1812, when the French losses became greater than the French victories, I mean, some historians argue that he lost his nerve at this point, and he wasn't really the kind of the genius that he was before. I mean, you could argue a whole number of points, but that he didn't really rise to the occasion after that. Once the victory stopped coming as easily, he wasn't able to do anything really about it to kind of turn the tide. I think with Napoleon, it's unlucky. If he hadn't had uh, just a few years in his career, you'd be talking about him in the same breath as Alexander or, Mm. or Caesar. It's just the fact that he didn't wind up on top at the end of the, at the end of his life. Yeah. Had things been a little bit different, I don't think anybody would, you'd never have that feeling of Napoleon now as kind of the guy who who bottomed out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would argue that he never really bottomed out. I mean, 
he did as he did far better, obviously, than one would ever be expected to do in the circumstances. And it was mm-hmm. because they simply became overwhelming. Like, could anyone have succeeded in the situation that he was eventually put in? I mean, you could argue it was his fault that he was in those circumstances. Yeah. But in, in any case, he I, I mean, I think looking back now, it's hard to imagine how France could have gotten as far as it did even in spite of all the revolutionary things that it did in order to win its battles and wars i mean he was essentially one man one country against the entire entirety of the world really i think like i think especially in in the 90 days Mm. um like that that's just amazing to me and and as i said i i'm actually a napoleon fan i in a one-on-one i take washington (laughs) um but that is incredible like you say one man versus a continent he really was when he left Elba, mm-hmm. he came back yeah. to the continent. Yeah. Like he literally yeah. he took over France without firing a shot. And he was within a hair's breadth of winning at Waterloo. You know, mm-hmm. it, it was, a, I think it's a much closer battle. If his cavalry had detained Blucher, the entire history of Europe might have been different. Mm-hmm. Well, Zach has, Zach has an opinion. <laughs> well, I mean, I always think that uh, because Waterloo was the last real battle of the Napoleonic Wars, I think historians have kind of emphasized it too much. Could Napoleon really, even if he had devastated the British and eliminated the Prussians, would he really have been allowed to stay in place after all had been done? I mean, the Congress of Vienna was put on hold and the Congress of Vienna was designed to kind of make peace terms. Like, I don't really see anything. I mean, I think the war would have been prolonged, but I really don't see Napoleon staying in place just because he won at Waterloo. I think he would have had to, in order to stay in place, I think he would have had to prove in terms other than military that he was a safe leader. And I don't think anyone was willing willing to give him the benefit of the doubt, especially not the British, who were pretty Mm -hmm. much in control in Vienna. And I wonder, I don't really know this. I mean, obviously, Napoleon gets sort of a tarnished reputation in the English-speaking world because of the British view on him but how has he felt throughout europe travis might be the man for that uh, boy that's a question that's a good question but that is that is so complicated um still i would say he's he's still the oppressor he's still the guy that came through and and killed the population to or you know uh fought wars bloody bloody wars and and occupied um everybody and you know everybody had to live under hated french um so no, you know he's still seen as an aggressor. As, um, yeah, I mean it, it's just not as not as black as white, black and white as as other aggressors perhaps um, because of his reforms. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I don't just you know I don't I don't see him as just an occupier or, or you know just just someone like Alexander the Great or Caesar. Um, he tried to do some things, um, but yeah, that's a good question. Boy, that's complicated. Uh, you know. Um, <laughs> Do you know what um, how he's viewed in France? Yeah, I mean, so like from the Czech point of view is interesting. I could give you one example. There is, um, oh, France. I couldn't say France. He's probably just a a hero. You know, of, oh, France. Of, he's revered. In yeah, France, of still. their past, regardless of yeah. you know the bad he's, things are just not taught. He's school. along along the same lines as Louis the Fourteenth is. He's yeah. seen as one of the men who brought France to its kind of greatest extent of power and glory. Gave it glory. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, in Czech Republic, it's different because um, so like I was at a I was at a um, Pete Coleman and I the the co-host for Bohemian and History of Alchemy we went to a reenactment of the Austerlitz um, battle 
and oh. Czechs loved it. You know, so, you know, you see Czechs dressing up as French and Austrians and the Austrians are not the good guys because, you know, they were the Czech overlords and, you know, Czechs mm. speak a uh, Slavic language and, and Austrians speak German. Um, so it's a really interesting, it was just great to be there. And, and, uh, you know, we did a show on that event on Bohemian Two. sneaky plug. Uh, thank you. And, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, you know, Czechs were playing both sides. They were trying to, they were very, that is a huge thing in Czech Republic reenactments, even like Hussite Wars and all those. But yeah, Austria, you know, they had, <laughs> it was just a huge turnout to watch, um, a Napoleonic force, you know, beat the Austrians and they, they, you know, looking at the battlefield, looking at the hills and seeing how they had, you know, French cannons set up and you could really see the strategy. Um, you had, because it's a really hilly area, you also had a great vantage point. And there, there was a commentary in Czech the whole time, uh, just describing phases of the battle. And it's just loved. Now, Germany's different because they didn't have German overlords. They were their own German overlords and they were just occupied by the French, period. Um, but you know, like I said, up, up until my generation, French is still, it might, it's not really that different today. Um, but you know, when I was still in school, um, definitely French was even in Catholic Bavaria, way more people chose French over Latin to learn. And it was still a, a language that you could assume people understood, um, because they all learned it in their childhood. And if, and if you were faced with a, an older French document, you, I mean, you knew what it said instantly. Um, that's the kind of influence it has to this day to a degree. But if you actually talk about the Napoleonic Wars and Napoleon, oh, yeah, he was a villain. Sure. He was an aggressor. Hmm. Well, that's an interesting look at sort of, I guess, Napoleon's legacy. Um, before we, we forget about George Washington, uh, I want to just mention what his legacy might boil down to. Um, you know, for, for me and I think for a lot of people, um, you know, it's, it's the walking away from power, the turning their back on power, the idea that, uh, you know, power is fleeting, but, you know, esteem is forever. Um, and I think it, it could be best summed up in, I think, a, a rather spurious quote by George III, uh, upon learning that Washington was stepping down, uh, he is allegedly, which I don't think actually happened, allegedly exclaimed, well, then he's the greatest man in the world. <laughs> and that's what I think uh, will always be Washington's truest legacy. Yeah. The, yeah. Just all the precedents that the fact that he set a um, he set the stage, he set an example for future presidents to follow. Yeah. Not just presidents, though. All leaders, I think. Anyone mm -hmm. who wants to, that example's there mm -hmm. to follow. And before him, I don't know how many did. Good point. Yep. Mm. Um, one more Napoleonic legacy, because we haven't talked about it so far, and it's the first thing I actually wrote down off the top of my head, was <laughs> Egyptology. Um, oh, Napoleon yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so, hey... That's a that's a clear plus point, right? Or or was it too early in in archaeology and they destroyed a lot of evidence? Because that's also a fact. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's always a tricky thing to say about that time period, where like the British taking like whole cities out of the out of their context. But yeah, they did save them too. Well, you know, there's as a turning mummies into an oil painting pigment. Um, that's kind of that's atrocious. yeah 
Yeah, it's definitely so. a plus or minus of their yeah. time. That... <laughs> but they started off <laughs> wow. the field. I mean, you know, we've learned a lot since then, but someone had to start it. Someone had to do those early beginnings. And that was, you know, Napoleon's armies kind of, you know, were the first archaeologists in Egypt in a way. So. Mm. Okay. Well. No, it, that's a negative. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> it could be worse. Just, a, just yeah. a, a general unwillingness to attribute anything positive to Napoleon. It's very upsetting. <laughs> well, that that campaign was such a disaster on so many levels. Oh, it was. And, and then and, he just completely abandoned some of his oldest, you know, veterans who'd been with him since Italy. Like he, he just comes off as as such a rotten character out of the Egyptian episode that I don't know if if the nascent Egyptology that he sparked is really a justification. Well, it's not like he went to Egypt in the hope of finding some great answer to life's problems or finding a load of mummies. He essentially went there to try and threaten British India uh, and the other, as far as I know, anyway, and the Egyptian stuff came afterwards. It was a byproduct, um, yeah. Yeah, so... <sighs> I'm kind of annoyed because I'm supposed to be pro-Napoleon and I'm, I'm to, to a certain extent, lambasting him here for this kind of thing. But yeah. All right. And, and now to wrap up, guys, let, let's get into the idea of legacies and, and final thoughts and our, our judgments that we're making based on our discussion today. Okay. Um, I will go first then. I'd like to say first, uh, I mean, obviously, you can't mention America without mentioning Washington. So... Obviously, there's that. Uh, George Washington was a hugely important historical figure. I'd certainly call him the most important historical figure in America. As a founding father, Like there, there is no other, in my opinion, that, that measures up to him. Uh, any criticisms of his character or his ability, besides he set really important precedents, his legacy is unquestionable when it comes to uh, the, the things and the legacy that he left behind for America to follow. Um, he's very, very important in that sense. If we're comparing him to other American figures, he comes out very far on top. But if we're comparing him to Napoleon, I feel Napoleon comes on top for a number of reasons. Uh, if you're going to... I'll run through them now, in fact. Uh, so, first of all, for military, uh, I'd say Washington is trumped by Napoleon for a variety of reasons, some of which we've already covered. I'd say that the legacies for the Napoleonic Code... I think what which is better that you set up a new nation in the United States or that you set up a new code of laws for the entirety of the European continent to follow uh that's hard that that's a matter of debate. I think certainly Americans would say that Washington is better and in a way it's kind of hard not to be slightly critical of my great American colleagues at this very moment but I think it's very little coincidence in the fact that the two Europeans are in this in this case are supporting Napoleon, whereas the two Americans are more in line with Washington. I think that's no uh, coincidence. I'm going to be a bit uh, sly and cheeky in that. In that, but uh, I think it's very hard. Just like as if I was from France, I think I would be more uh, be far more in favor of Napoleon than I am now. But it's only historically accurate to say that both ma both men had their flaws and their uh, qualities. But I certainly think that Napoleon. As a figure, I think we will come to terms eventually with whether he was a genuinely good man or a genuinely bad man. Some people have even called him like uh, <laughs> a psychopath. Like there's varying degrees of what to call him. But yeah, I'm rambling. But basically what I'm trying to say is Napoleon was a, a good influence in Europe 
to the extent that he set Europe on course for modernity and he took it out of feudalism. He took it out of the old ages of uh, serfdom, that kind of thing. He emancipated the Jews. He brought in the Code Napoleon. He set in a whole new line of military theories and a way to fight wars, which you could say is good or bad. I'm saying it's good because Europe had to progress and the world had to progress. The ideas of freedom, you could say they were inspired by the American Revolution, but Napoleon brought them on and he took them on and made them his own better than any other man could have. I think in terms of personal genius and brilliance, there was none, there's no real man in in Europe that you could really compare to Napoleon in terms of that. So yeah, that's my uh, very long-winded conclusion. Should I, should I add a couple things to Napoleon? Sure. Um, yeah, so first of all, emancipating the Jews. that That's just like pretty much unbeatable in my book. So, the, um, you know, I'll give them that. Um, and, you know, great the fact that we have great Dutch last names in protest of Napoleon because Napoleon made Dutch and some other, some northern regions of Germany get first names for the first time. We have Dutch last names von, uh, like, uh, Pissandefeld, which sounds exactly like what it means. Um, <laughs> you know, in protest of their French overlords, they're like, oh, you want me to have a last name? I'll give you a last name. That's awesome. And I love the Dutch for that, you know, too. Um, <laughs> so that that's all I'd really add. I guess the, the other things are give and take. It's not purely positive. Um, the, the standardization of things in general... Uh, Germany owes a lot to that. Um, so, yeah, huge legacy in, in that regard. Germany's legal system. And, hey, by the way, Louisiana still has Napoleonic French law. Um, if you get your bar in 49 states, it's it's based on English common law. The 50th state is still, you got to learn, you know, the French code um, or code, you know, code law. So, um, yeah, I, okay. I, I rest my case. <laughs> Steve? Um I think every they've um, Zach and Travis have summed up Napoleon pretty well. I think for Washington, it's the fact that he still mentioned as an actual the precedents that he set are still relevant to today in in American politics, and it's not left or right. He's not really owned by anyone. I think that that was such a powerful thing for a young country to have is that a guy who transcended boundaries, nobody can really own him. And if he had been any other way, who knows what have really happened after that. I think that you see what happened is almost as soon as he left office that divides happened. But everybody always had this idea that we should hang together because of his, of George Washington's precedent. And, and yeah, uh, I think, and, and just, and just my final thoughts uh, on it are, you know, we've, we've talked about these two people um, for almost two hours. Um, you know, we've gone back and forth, you know, neither are perfect men. They are both flawed. Um, and I think in many ways, greatness is an illusion. Um, but I think about, you know, yes, Napoleon is maybe the father and father of modern Europe, but in so many ways, Washington set a standard for free societies on how an executive should act and whether it's been applied and whether it's been followed is certainly dubious, but his behavior stands as a counterweight to the Bonapartes, to the Hitlers, to the people who abuse the trust of their office and misuse it 
and in so many ways, I think Washington's combining his character with his office makes him far and away the greater person with the greater ramifications for history. Hmm. But that's just my two cents. <laughs> Very interesting. But guys, um, I think it's been a great talk. Uh, you know, we've we've really gone through a lot of information, and we could probably keep talking for hours uh, and not necessarily get anywhere. You know, Zach, you point out accurately that the Europeans are, uh, you know, uh, on Napoleon's side and the Americans are on Washington's <laughs> side. But I'd also point out me and Steve agree on nothing, <laughs> like so many Americans. Mm. Um, but here we are, both hanging on to Washington, as he pointed out. I'd, I'd be interested to see, had we gotten the two Brits involved, if they would have differed very much. Like, would they have held the kind of British ideas like Napoleon was really short or that kind of, those kinds <laughs> of things? Or their opinions on Washington, because Washington is so revered in the U.S. I mean, even with the the issues with slavery and all those other things, I don't, I mean, I, you could, I don't know if there's been like a, uh, poll about washington but i would say that he's pretty popular oh yeah. yeah oh yeah whereas i wonder what our uh british friends and colleagues would say <laughs> and we uh, needed our british friends and colleagues so if you're out there definitely send a uh send something into agora we'd love to hear about it <laughs> and yeah, yeah all the all the agora listeners you know we're interested all the Agora listeners, you know what we think now, and we'd like to hear what you think. Uh, so you can please let us know. Um, we have uh, the Agora Podcast Network Facebook, uh, our Agora Podcast Twitter, at Agora Podcasts. And, of course, we have our Agora Podcast Network Reddit page. Uh, so, yeah, get in touch with us. Let us know what you think. Washington versus Bonaparte. But, guys, I wanted to thank you all for uh, joining me today and for your discussion and your thoughts. And uh, just want to go down the road one more time if you have any plugs. Um, <laughs> start alphabetically, as always. Travis? Oh, oh hey. There we go. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm Travis Dow. I host or co-host or translate um, the History of Alchemy podcast, the History of Germany podcast, uh, the Bohemian podcast, where we we mentioned some of the battles and um, also Lafayette and and some various things that took place in modern Czech Republic, and uh, I also translate the secret cabinet from German. And episode number one actually is on Napoleon. Well, it's on a part of Napoleon, and that's all I'm going to say unless you mark this explicit. So, um, yeah, <laughs> you can find all my podcasts under uh, podcastnick.com or just look at the directory of the Agora Podcast Network. Great. Steve? And I host and produce the History of the Papacy podcast. And if you'd like to learn more, you can always go to, like we said, agorapodcastnetwork.com or my own website, a2zhistorypage.com. Finally, last but not least, Zach. Oh, well, as you all know, I'm not a big fan of plugs, but I will do my best. Um, <laughs> I am the uh, loving guardian and owner of When Diplomacy Fails podcast, um, which you should find by searching it in Google or iTunes or any of the usual places. I would encourage you to check out its blog and check out the email address, uh, review, subscribe, rate on iTunes, all the usual stuff. Um, and yeah, thanks for supporting the podcast. I would also encourage you to find the Reddit page because even though I'm terrible at Reddit in every single way, 
Uh, Travis is injecting a lot of his time into it, so do support it and visit. And I'm Tom Daly, host of the American Biography Podcast, and you can find me on Twitter at American underscore bio and on Facebook by searching it how you, you know, search Facebook. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. You all have a good day. So that was our epic 90-minute debate. We obviously did not arrive at a consensus, but we had a very robust, wide-ranging discussion. So if nothing else, we hope you enjoyed listening to some of your favorite podcasters trading witty repartee for an hour and a half, and that it was worth the price of admission. Now, we really do want to know what you think, so we are going to pin a poll up on the Agora Twitter feed, at Agora Podcasts. So make sure you follow us there and vote Washington or Bonaparte. You can also follow the Agora Podcast Network on Facebook and on Reddit. And make sure you check out our website, agorapodcastnetwork.com. I would like to again thank all the podcasters who donated their time to today's discussion. And thank you all for listening, too. Well, that's it for now. I'm Tom Daly for Agora, hoping to talk to you again soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.